Well, when we left off last week, our two missionary heroes, Paul and Barnabas, had just had a really nasty breakup. After several years of being used by God in powerful ways and doing great ministry together, building up their home church there in Antioch of Syria, uh, being sent by God onto the mission field to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and plant churches throughout the island of Cyprus. Uh, Remember, it was there on Cyprus where they had that showdown with that Jewish sorcerer named Bar-Jesus. And then from there, they went to the mainland and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ in the region of Galatia. Paul and Barnabas had done this amazing ministry together, but all of a sudden they have this breakup at the end of chapter 15. It says in verse 39 of Acts 15, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. You see, they agreed that it was time to go back and revisit those churches they had planted on their first missionary trip, but they disagreed about who they should have on their missionary team. Barnabas wanted to bring his cousin John Mark And Paul basically said, over my dead body. And they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted ways. And so Barnabas takes John Mark and heads back to Cyprus. And then it says that Paul grabbed a new ministry partner named Silas. And they headed to that area of Galatia. It's a pretty sad breakup, really, because when you think about it, Paul and Barnabas didn't disagree over uh, a theological or a doctrinal issue. They weren't disagreeing and having conflict because of some sort of moral issue. It came down to different perspectives. It came down to different opinions. And I believe that unresolved conflict grieved the heart of God and probably caused at least a small rift in their home church there in Antioch. It wasn't God's will. But regardless of the fact that that breakup was not God's will, God will prove himself in Acts chapter 16 to be a God who lives out and carries out the promise of Romans 8.28. That's my favorite verse in the Bible where God says, and in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called According to his purpose, even though that breakup between Paul and Barnabas wasn't God's will, God is going to take those lemons and he is going to make some pretty tasty lemonade. He's going to take this one missionary team and multiply it into two to do even greater work for the kingdom of Jesus Christ here on earth. So we read in verses 39 through 41 there at the end of Acts 15, Barnabas took Mark, sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. And so that's where we pick up today in verse 1 of Acts chapter 16. So please be there in your Bibles. Uh, By the way, if you have a pen and a piece of paper, it's always nice to have that handy to jot down some notes along the way. Here we are, verse 1. Acts chapter 16. Now, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they traveled from town to town. They delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. 
Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. May God bless us as we read and study his word today. When we trace Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts, we discover something pretty incredible. Paul, over the course of his three missionary journeys, traveled some 10,000 miles on foot. Uh, That's equivalent to heading out from Victorville on foot, walking to New York City four times over. That's an amazing amount of walking, and he did that for the sake of the gospel, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to areas where they had not heard of the salvation message and the good news. And so I want to share this little map with you. Here's a map of Paul's second missionary journey. So what we find happening at the end of chapter 15, there in that homeland of Antioch of Syria over on the right side of your screen, Barnabas takes John Mark and he heads over to the island of Cyprus to visit those churches that Paul and Barnabas had planted on their first missionary journey. Since Cyprus was taken care of, we find here in chapter 16 that Paul is going to head north from Antioch. He doesn't need to take a boat at this point. He's just sticking to the mainland. He goes north through that area of Syria and Cilicia. He rounds the corner, likely stops by his hometown of Tarsus, and goes the back way into this area of southern Galatia that we talked about over the last few weeks. That's where we find those Galatian cities of Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch, uh, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And so Paul is going to minister in the early verses of Acts chapter 16 in these cities where he and Barnabas had planted churches and led people to Christ on their first missionary journey. And so they take this trip. His, his first priority on this second missionary trip is to revisit and strengthen those churches that they had already planted. Since Team Barnabas had already taken care of the island of Cyprus, Paul's focus, once again, are those cities in southern Galatia. And so that's what he and his uh, missionary teammate Silas do. Uh, according to Acts 15:41, he goes through Syria and Cilicia. They strengthen those churches there. And when they get to southern Galatia and they're visiting those cities of Derby and Lystra, uh, presumably they also visited those other cities of Pisidian Antioch and Iconium. But Luke's focus here in the early verses of chapter 16 is one disciple in particular in the city of Lystra. As they they get to Lystra, Paul finds a young man who is eager to serve the Lord. His name is Timothy. And there Timothy is described as a young man. His mom was a Jewish uh, woman, uh, so she was a Jewess, and his dad was Greek. In other words, mom was Jewish And dad was Gentile. This was a mixed marriage. This was not a common thing in Israel, but it was not that uncommon outside of Israel and other parts of the Roman Empire. Sometimes a Jew would marry a Gentile. That's what happened in the case of Timothy's parents. 
Well, there was something about Timothy that stood out to Paul. He, he was young. He was eager to serve Christ. He was teachable. And my best guess is uh, Paul still had young John Mark on his mind. He had refused to give John Mark a second chance to join him on that missionary journey. And probably to some extent, Paul admired Barnabas for taking on the young apprentice who had goofed up the first time. So Barnabas' young apprentice was the man John Mark. And so it seems that Paul wanted a young apprentice of his own. And so he takes on Timothy to join him in the missionary work. Now, verse 3 here in chapter 16 has been a source of confusion for some Christians over the years. It was just one chapter ago that Paul and Barnabas went down to Jerusalem and made the case that the gospel of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with circumcision. A Gentile does not need to be circumcised or obey the laws of Moses in order to be saved because salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Yet here in verse 3 of chapter 16... Uh, it makes it very clear that Paul has Timothy circumcised. His dad was Greek, so he had not been circumcised. Dad's point of view overruled mom's point of view. Mom wanted her boy to be circumcised. Dad said, no, he's not. So Timothy had never been circumcised. So why does Paul have him circumcised if he spends so much time both in the prior chapter and later in the New Testament saying circumcision has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the answer is, for Timothy, circumcision had nothing to do with salvation. It had everything to do with Paul's God-given mission to reach as many people as possible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I like how John Wade summarizes it in his commentary on the book of Acts. He said that, says it this way. Uh, Timothy's problem was that the Greeks looked upon him as Jewish, yet he was not acceptable to the Jews because he wasn't circumcised. As a man without a country, so to speak, his effectiveness as a missionary would have been hampered to solve this problem Paul arranged to have him circumcised. So Timothy wasn't circumcised because uh, he had to be circumcised. I would guess that his Greek dad actually objected to him being circumcised. He didn't support it, I would guess. Timothy was circumcised because he freely chose to do it. He chose to remove a barrier that would keep Jews from hearing what he had to say about Jesus Christ. And so he's circumcised. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with carrying out what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. If something was a barrier to people hearing the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul was in the practice of removing that barrier so people would have open ears to hear the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 4. As Paul, Silas, and Timothy make their way through the towns of southern Galatia, they deliver those four simple rules for Gentile Christians that had been handed down by the apostles and elders there in Jerusalem from chapter 15. According to verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith. They grew daily in numbers. Things get really interesting, though, in verses 6 through 10. After visiting and strengthening the churches in southern Galatia, Paul has a big decision to make. Where do we go next? Back in chapter 15, verse 36, Paul had laid out the mission 
for this second missionary trip. Paul had said to Barnabas, let us go and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Well, by the time we get to the end of verse five of chapter 16, Paul's already done that. Barnabas had taken care of Cyprus. Paul and Silas and now Timothy with him have taken care of the four cities in Galatia. So Paul could have held up a sign that said mission accomplished, right? He did what he had set out to do, but he didn't turn around and go back home. That's what many of us would have done. Mission accomplished, go back home to my home church in Antioch of Syria. But Paul couldn't bring himself to do that. He had come too far and he had a yearning desire to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in cities where people had not received the good news of salvation. And so as we go back to this map here, here he is in Antioch of Syria deciding what to do next. And so Paul has this idea, I'm going to head west into Asia Minor, this area over here just shy of that part of the, that extension of the Mediterranean Sea. And so from Antioch to Ephesus might have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 miles. But he was willing to travel to Ephesus because Ephesus, you may remember this from our study of the seven churches of Revelation that we did late last year. Ephesus was the capital city of Asia Minor. And all seven churches of Revelation there that Jesus addresses in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, all seven of them are in that province of Asia. Paul must have known that if he is able to take the gospel to the capital city of Ephesus, that would serve as a beachhead, allowing the gospel to spread throughout Asia Minor. And that got Paul excited. We get to reach all of Asia Minor by going to Ephesus. And so he starts heading west toward Ephesus. But what does it say there? Verse 6. The Holy Spirit kept Paul from preaching the word there. We're not told how the Holy Spirit relayed that message to Paul, but one way or another, God spoke to Paul loud and clear. I don't want you to go west. So Paul says, well, that's kind of a bummer, but okay, if God doesn't want me to head west, I'll head north into Bithynia because Bithynia hasn't been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he decides to head north into Bithynia. But then in verse 7 we read, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So Paul's saying, okay, well, God won't let me go west and God won't let me go north. I guess I'll kind of skirt Asia Minor and go over to Troas. At least it's kind of a coastal city. If worse comes to worse, at least I can hop on a boat and go back home to Antioch. And so he heads over to Troas awaiting further instructions. After they get there, God gives Paul his new marching orders in verse 9. Paul has this vision at night, a, a vision of a Macedonian man standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Well, where on earth is Macedonia? Well, over here is Greece, modern day Greece. It was split into two major parts in those days, Macedonia in the, in the north, Macedon, Macedonia, named after Alexander the Great's dad, Philip of Macedon. And in the south was the area called Achaia. And so this Macedonian man, northern Greece, in this vision is calling out to Paul and saying, please come and help us, come and help us. And so Paul interprets that to mean that God is calling them to cross over into northern Greece, into Macedonia and share the gospel there. This is pretty exciting because as he crossed into Greece, 
He was crossing into modern day Europe, a completely different continent than he had ever shared the gospel on. That's pretty exciting. He had only up to this point shared the gospel on the continent of Asia. And so in this vision, it says, come on over. Now, I want you to notice the little pronoun we in verse 10. It reads, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. Remember, the book of Acts is written by Luke. And so this little word we is very significant. It's very significant because it tells us that here in Troas, that little town close to the water's edge, is where Luke was picked up and joined Paul's missionary journey. If we go over to Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, we read that Luke was a doctor. So he likely had a medical practice there in the city of Troas. But like Peter and Andrew and James and John, who left their fishing business when Jesus said, follow me, Luke seems to have left his physician, his, his doctor's practice, in order to follow Jesus Christ by helping the Apostle Paul on his missionary journey. Luke walks away from his medical practice to follow Jesus. And I wonder, would you and I be willing to do the same? Would you and I be willing to walk away from our successful careers and businesses in order to follow Jesus? I like how Chuck Swindoll says it. He writes in his commentary, Try to imagine life in the sandals of Paul without air conditioning. Would you have been his companion? Would you have been struck, uh, struck out with him? Would you have struck out with him when he left Antioch for places unknown? Would you have left a successful medical practice at Troas? I've asked myself the same questions. They force us to probe below the surface of our comfortable world. Well said. He wrote it better than I spoke it. <laughs> that's, that's a great question to ask ourselves. Would we be willing to strike out with Paul on this missionary journey? If you fast forward years later to what he writes in 2 Timothy, the last letter he writes before being executed, it's clear most of his missionary buddies had left him. And it was hard to hang with Paul because this guy was hardcore. He gave everything he had to Jesus Christ. And his journey was not an easy one. Well, the first city in north, northern Greece where Paul ministered was Philippi. And we read about it beginning in verse 11 of Acts chapter 16. So please pick up with me again in your Bibles, Acts 16, beginning in verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come, stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by the slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. 
She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and he said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Such a great, great passage. It seems clear if we were to read on to the last verse of the chapter, verse 40, seems clear that Paul's ministry in Philippi resulted in a number of people becoming followers of Christ. But here in this chapter, Paul focuses, or I should say Luke, the writer of Acts, focuses on just three of those converts in the city of Philippi. First is a uh, woman, a businesswoman named Lydia. Uh, Second, there's a demon-possessed slave girl. And finally, a Philippian jailer. So let's take a quick look at these three converts to Christianity that Luke highlights here in chapter 16. These are three very, very different people. First was Lydia. Luke tells us about her in verses 13 through 15. Paul's normal practice when entering a new city was to make a beeline to the Jewish synagogue, but evidently there was no synagogue in the city of Philippi. In those days, there had to be a minimum of 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue. If there weren't 10 Jewish men in the city, then you couldn't have a synagogue. It wasn't allowed by the Jewish powers that be. And so what they would do in those days, if you didn't have 10 Jewish men in the city, uh, then you would have a place of prayer designated. If there was a river running outside the city, you would meet by the river. That way, an out-of-town Jewish visitor, if there wasn't a synagogue, would know just head down to the river and there'll be a service there on the Sabbath day. So that's what Paul does. He discovers there's no synagogue, so he makes a beeline to the river. And as he goes down there, he discovers there is that informal place of prayer. 
And he gets there and discovers there's a number of women, Jewish women, who were meeting for prayer and for worship and a discussion of the scriptures. Paul joins in the discussion and he leads a woman by the name of Lydia to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. According to verse 14, Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth from the from the city of Thyatira. We talked about Thyatira a bit when we had the Revelation series late last year. That was the fourth of the cities of Revelation uh, that Jesus addresses. And remember, Thyatira was a small city, but it did have a lot of very organized trade guilds. One of those trade guilds was a guild that dealt exclusively with purple cloth. And so this trade guild had most likely sent Lydia as a representative of their trade guild to the city of Philippi, where she would help expand their business. And so Lydia, in all likelihood, was a fairly wealthy uh, businesswoman because that purple cloth was very expensive to purchase. And so she has a home that as soon as she becomes a Christian, she immediately opens it up to Paul and his other missionary companions as an Airbnb. She opens it up to him, says, come on in, you stay here as long as you're in Philippi. And it seems that she even opened up her church as the new meeting place, excuse me, her home as the new meeting place for the church. Well, the second Christian convert highlighted in this chapter is a demon-possessed slave girl. She's talked about in verses 16 through 18. We're not told specifically that after the demon was driven out, she became a follower of Jesus Christ. But I think it's implied. Uh, Imagine being possessed by this demon and being a slave for so many years. And finally, Jesus Christ sets you free. How could you help but want to give your life? To Jesus Christ. And so she's the focus in verses 16 through 18. She earned a great deal of money for her slave owners by fortune telling. Uh, She didn't seem uh, to have been a prostitute, but she was certainly being pimped out by her slave owners. They were making buco bucks off of her fortune telling, taking advantage of her. They couldn't care less about her. They only were concerned with the money. She must have felt drawn to Paul and his missionary team because day after day she kept following them to the place of prayer and shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Was she speaking the truth? Absolutely she was. But after many days, Paul can't take it anymore. And so he he doesn't need demons running his PR campaign. And he doesn't need this girl to be like a marionette with demons or her slave owners pulling her marionette strings. And so Paul turns around one day and commands the demon in the name of Jesus Christ to leave her. And the demon does leave her. She's set free, free from her demon, and it would appear also free from her slave masters. As Paul has just written a few months earlier to the Galatians in Galatians 5 verse 1, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's a great verse. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Uh, Jesus, earlier in his ministry, had said, the one who the Savior sets free is free indeed. Amen? Amen. God brings us incredible freedom, doesn't he? Well, the third Christian convert highlighted in this chapter is a Philippian jailer. In verses 19 through 34, surprisingly, after the slave girl's owners see that she has been set free from her demon, they don't throw a party. 
They don't celebrate. Hey, congratulations. You're not possessed by a demon anymore. Quite the opposite. Uh, these slave owners are ticked. They're upset because, oh no, they've been hit right in the wallet. They've been hit in the pocketbook. And now they're not making all this money off her fortune telling anymore. And they are ticked. Can you imagine people who care more about money than they care about their fellow human beings? Not hard to imagine, is it? Planned Parenthood, a multi-billion dollar business that's in it for the money, despite what they say. What about the porn industry? The porn industry doesn't exist to make marriages and relationships stronger. They exist for money. And they couldn't care less about how many relationships and marriages they destroy in the process. How about Hollywood? Hollywood's not in it to be a blessing to people. Hollywood's in it for the money. And the list goes on and on. Well, the slave girl's owners bring Paul and Silas to the local leaders. They drum up some bogus charges against them. Because a small mob is forming, the leaders have a knee-jerk reaction. They flog Paul and Silas severely. They, they tear those shards off their back. Flogging was a very violent process of whipping. And then after being whipped and flogged, they throw them into prison for the night. And they order the jailer to guard them carefully. So in order to do that, the jailer places them in an inner cell and places their feet in stocks. That was the best way to keep them secure and keep them from escaping. But something very surprising happens in verse 25 as Paul and Silas are sitting there on the cold stone floor with their backs throbbing in agony. Around midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and joyfully singing like there's no tomorrow. I'm singing in the clink, just singing in the clink. What a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us what song they're singing. It probably wasn't that one. But I, I'm curious, if you were in Paul's shoes, sandals, or maybe in the prison barefoot, if you were there with Paul, what song might you be singing if you were worshiping God in that moment? Maybe you like some of the older hymns. Possibly you'd be belting out Amazing Grace or How Great Thou Art or The Old Rugged Cross. Maybe you like the, the newer choruses. Maybe you'd be singing What a Beautiful Name It Is or How Great Is Our God or, or, or The Goodness of God. Whatever song it was, they were belting it out to God and the other prisoners in the jail were listening. They had never heard anything like this. Instead of bickering and complaining, they're praising and singing to God. Huh. As they're singing and praying, a violent earthquake shakes the prison. According to verse 26, all the prison doors fly open. Everyone's chains come loose. The jailer who had been sleeping at the time, he wakes up. And when he sees that all the prison doors are open, he assumed that all the prisoners had done what any prisoner with half a brain would do when the front gate is left open to the prison. <laughs> he figured they all escaped, right? Hey! Lucky me. It's my lucky day. Let's get out of here as quickly as we can before the prison guard wakes up. And so what does he do? He lifts his sword and goes to kill himself because in those days, if a Roman guard allowed his prisoners to escape, he would be given that prisoner's sentence and would be completely shamed and uh, completely, you know, kicked out of any 
powers that be in the law enforcement area. And so anyway, uh, it, it was shameful to have your prisoners escape. It was better actually to commit suicide in that culture than it was to be shamed and allow yourself uh, to be punished for allowing prisoners to escape. And so he's about to harm himself. But Paul yells when he sees him doing this. Don't harm yourself. Our singing wasn't that bad, was it? Well, no, that's not exactly what he says. He says, don't harm yourself. We are all here. We're all here. And so the jailer calls for lights. He gets the torches going and he can't believe his eyes. All the prisoners are still there in their cells. He falls trembling before Paul and Silas, brings them out of their cells and asks them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And that night, after hearing the gospel message, the jailer and his entire household accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and they're baptized. And there you have it. Three very, very different people who became followers of Christ in Philippi. Number one, a wealthy businesswoman. Number two, a poor slave girl. And finally, a middle-class Gentile man in law enforcement. Do you know that in, in Paul's day, Jewish men used to pray a specific prayer every morning. And it was a prayer of thanks. And they would thank God. Every morning, they would thank God that they were not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Those are three things they thank God for every morning. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, that I'm not a woman, and I'm not a slave. Isn't it interesting that those are the three individuals highlighted here in Acts 16 that Jesus Christ saved. Oh, he'll save a woman just as quickly as he'll save a man. He'll save a slave girl as quickly as he'll save a slave master. And he will save a military law enforcement guy just as quickly as someone on the outside. Isn't that just like God? We read over in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen? We are all one in Christ Jesus. This is such a great chapter, and there's so many practical insights we can pull from it. I could give you more than this, but I want to boil these insights down to four for the sake of time. Here are four powerful insights that I'd like you to jot down and meditate on today and hopefully throughout this week. Four important insights. Here we go. Insight number one. When you say yes to God, it needs to be an unconditional yes. A conditional obedience isn't obedience at all. Say that with me. A conditional obedience isn't obedience at all. Chuck Swindoll says it really well. He writes, Paul's obedience was not conditioned on his comfort or salary package. He didn't go over the benefits summary before launching his missions career. His goal was simple and clear to preach Christ where he had not been named. If that meant being shackled to a Roman dungeon and choking on his own blood, so be it. Back in Troas, when he said yes to that vision, it was an unconditional yes. And I say amen to that. I wonder, how often do you and I put conditions on our obedience? God, I'll, I'll start reading my Bible every day if you'll do this for me. 
Uh, God, I'll make church a priority every week if my shift at work changes. God, I'll start tithing after my boss gives me a raise. God, I'll share my faith once I feel more comfortable. There's no shortage of flimsy excuses for disobeying God. But my obedience and your obedience needs to be like Paul's unconditional obedience to Jesus Christ. Insight number two. How does God guide you? Well, most often God's guidance is both negative and positive, personal and corporate. He closes some doors, opens others, and confirms his will to us and to other believers. I imagine that Paul was disappointed and confused when God's Spirit told him, don't go to Asia Minor. Paul must have been thinking, well, shoot, I wanted to go to Asia Minor. I've been wanting to go to Ephesus. That could be such a beachhead. I want to go there. I want to share the gospel. God said no. But he trusted God as he headed north instead. But as he headed north, God said, I don't want you to go there either. Once again, I would bet that Paul was disappointed and confused. You know, the people in Bithynia, they need to hear the gospel. But he trusts God anyway. And at long last, God opened a door to spread the gospel in the city of Philippi. It's one of the most common questions Christians ask. What is God's will for my life? It's a great question. And here's the answer. God's word shares with you what his general plan is for your life. I like to summarize it this way. You hear me say it often uh, in our online broadcasts. God calls you to trust him to love Him, and to obey Him. That's the New Testament in a nutshell for the Christian. God calls us to trust Him, to love Him, and to obey Him. But what is God's specific plan for your life? Well, in order to discover that specific plan, you need to pray and let Him direct you through His Holy Spirit. Tell God you're ready and willing to follow His marching orders for your life. He will close some doors... And he'll open others. As he opens doors, more times than not, he will confirm to you and to at least one other Christian that he wants you to walk through that door. That's how God speaks. He speaks by closing doors, by opening doors, and by confirming to your heart and spirit and to those around you that he wants you to walk through that open door. Finally, insight number three. I actually have four, so this isn't finally. (laughs) Insight number three, any fool can sing during the day, but God gives his followers songs in the night. I borrowed this first sentence from the great 19th century preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon. I I liked how he said that. Any fool can sing during the day. That's true, isn't it? It's easy to sing when the lights are on and the kids are behaving and you've just polished off your, your full cup of coffee in the morning. But it's hard to sing at midnight. When you've just been wrongly accused and you've just been beaten up and thrown into the big house and your buddy in the stocks next to you stinks to high heaven, it's hard to sing under those circumstances. But that's the best time to praise God. That's when praise becomes really powerful, just like in that Philippian dungeon. That's when people around you sit up and really start to listen to what you're saying. 
There's something different about this man. There's something unusual about this woman. There's a strength about him. There's a a peace about her. They have something that I don't have and I really, really want it. When going through a crisis, your knee-jerk reaction is to grumble and complain about how unfair it is. But it doesn't do you or anyone around you any good. How about trying a different approach? Thank God. Praise God. Worship God. Sing to God in the night. Now, the real finally. Finally, number four. Insight number four. There are many different times and places where God calls you to share Jesus. So always be ready to share the good news of Jesus Christ at any time, at any place, and in any way. Think about it. Timothy was led to Christ in part by his godly mom and grandmother. Lydia was led to Christ through a quiet conversation with Paul at the river's edge. The jailer's conversion was much more dramatic. One minute he was about to commit suicide, and the next minute he was confessing Christ at his baptism. Three very different people in three very different settings led to Christ in three very different ways. God calls you and me to always be ready to share Christ with those around us. Whether we're in our family room, in our neighbor's driveway, at our desk at work or at school, whether we're on the basketball court or in the checkout line at Walmart, we must always be ready to share Jesus with that person who's standing next to us. I want you to think about this. Paul was never really imprisoned. He could sing in jail just as easily as he could sing at church. And he could share Christ with cons in the clink just as easily as he could share Christ with law-abiding citizens in a synagogue. It didn't matter to Paul. Because as long as he was right where God wanted him to be, he was free to sing and he was free to share Christ. And the same should be said about you and me. No matter where you are, no matter who you're with, You are free to pray, you are free to sing, and you are free to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with that person that God has supernaturally and strategically placed right in your path to hear what you have to say about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you once again for this Amazing example of the Apostle Paul. Lord, that man was like the Energizer Bunny. He kept going and going and going. And no matter what obstacles were thrown in his path, he kept going. No matter how much people beat him up, whether they threw rocks at his head and made him unconscious, or whether they beat his back or threw him in jail, Lord, he kept going. And Lord, we learned something new today. Not only did he keep going when his back was was pounding in pain and when his legs were cramped in those stocks and it's midnight and he can't sleep. He's just joyfully praising you. Lord, help us to sing praises to you in our nighttime as well. In the midst of our pain and struggles and difficulty and persecution and conflict. I pray that we would sing to you in the night. Lord, would you give every one of us today a song in the night? 
Some of us, Lord, listening to this broadcast, Lord, are going through some very difficult, difficult times in their lives. Physical difficulties, health issues, financial issues, relationship splits. Lord, whatever they're going through, would you give them a song in the night and teach us all to praise you, to worship you, to honor and adore you and share Christ with those around us right there in the middle of the nighttime for the glory of God and the advancement of your mission here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you have never experienced the peace of Jesus Christ in your storm and the joy of Jesus Christ in your storm, because when it comes down to it, you've never put Jesus in the driver's seat of your life, I want to urge you to make that decision today. It's not complicated to accept Jesus. Sometimes it's a little complicated following him because it's not easy. But it's not complicated to become a follower of Jesus. We like to share the ABCs. A, admit that you are a sinner and you desperately need Jesus to save you from your sin. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and is your only hope of being in a relationship with God and your only hope of making it to heaven. And C, choose to begin following Jesus Christ today. Put him in the driver's seat of your life. If you are ready to make that decision, you need to do what that Philippian jailer did and be baptized as soon as possible, showing God and the world you're serious about following Jesus Christ. Please reach out to us at Impact if we can pray with you or share more with you about putting Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life. Reach out to us if you know you need to be baptized. We'll help you do that as soon as possible as well. You can reach us at the church at 760-246-4100, or you can simply email us uh, here at Impact. You can email us at info at greaterimpact.cc. If you're watching us on Facebook, you can leave us a quick message here, here on Facebook as well, if you prefer. We look forward to hearing from you. We pray that God blesses you richly as you trust our Lord Jesus Christ, as you love him with all your heart, and as you obey his commands walking in obedience to him. May God bless you today. We'll see you next week.